Hi, I'm Sue Taylor. I'm on the Sauté board and work closely with Gil. Um, I'm going to actually sit down so I can see to read and to see you as well. That seems to help a little bit when you're wearing bifocals. Um, I guess in the spirit of, of uh, Rita, I also just wanted to lay out the morning a bit, too, from the perspective of an academic, a female academic. Uh, I'm not a religious scholar. I am an academic. And um, one of the things that I wanted to make sure that you knew was how incredibly important these women are, uh, these women scholars are, uh, to the academy as a whole. I think um, the female narrative came into the academy um, not so very long ago. And as Gil said, uh, the pushback uh, in the academy sometimes was fairly harsh for women scholars. So not only are these women really important to us in terms of our lineage, in terms of our practice, but also in terms of um, being representatives of not only their tradition, but also their gender. And as uh, feminist and female scholars, one of the things that within the academy, having females within the academy did, was that the female narrative actually opened the door for other narratives having to do with race and uh, sexual orientation and class and sexual identity and culture. And prior to females coming into the academy, oftentimes those voices also were not heard. So what you're hearing today is this wonderful, I think, and tender um, place of lineage, of history, but also these uh, women have a rich history, many of them in the academy as religious scholars, which again, I think is a very I use the word tender place again, because many students who are in the academy take religious studies as part of their um, liberal arts education, and oftentimes it's the place where their spirit gets touched for the first time. So again, having uh, Buddhist scholars who are females in this um, venue in the academy is incredibly wonderful and far-reaching. So having said that, I get the great pleasure this morning of moderating the morning with two wonderful scholars. Uh, the first woman I'm going to introduce is Don Neal. Don is a member of IMC, and many of us here in the Bay Area know her well. Dawn explores Buddhism as both a practitioner and a scholar. Uh, she has sat for multiple long retreats, both in the U.S. and in Asia. Where she, and in Asia, actually, she was temporarily ordained in Burma in 2009. Dawn now teaches meditation in Buddhist and multi-religious and secular settings. Uh, she is currently earning a master's degree in Buddhism, uh, Theravada studies, and chaplaincy from the Institute of Buddhist Studies. During school, she's begun to publish articles and present at conferences and symposia, much like today. And that is truly the sign of a, a budding scholar. <laughs> it's part of the hazing process in academia. <laughs> uh, she's a dedicated practitioner. Uh, she's um, dedicated also to practicing scholarship 
and um, integrating scholarship and her Buddhist meditation, giving integrity to both for the purpose of alleviating suffering. She volunteers, she meditates, and occasionally, as I said, teaches at IMC and elsewhere. And as she says, she is delighted today to support the understanding of women in Buddhism, as well as her friends at Aloka Vihara. Dawn. Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me? Semi? Okay. This is about the volume I'll be speaking, so I'm just going to keep talking, and is it better now? Okay, great. So I'm um, delighted to be here this morning to talk about Caroline Augusta Foley, Ms. Davids. I first ran across these initials, C-A-F, Ms. Davids, in Bhikkhu Bodhi footnotes. And at the time, I had no idea that I was looking at the initials of a woman. Didn't learn that until I started graduate school, actually. And Caroline, indeed, was a woman. She was also a suffragist, a scholar, a professor, an author of popular books, a translator, a wife, and a mother. I'm going to introduce her and her prolific accomplishments today briefly, and I also would like you to keep in mind as I'm talking that one of the points of this presentation is that the long arc of her career can be divided into roughly two halves, and both halves are still influential in Buddhism and to some extent in popular culture today. So her early life. She was born in England to a father who was a third-generation vicarage priest. And I don't know very much about her mother, but I do know her mother was a painter. She painted watercolors. Her intellectual passion was sparked early, and she went on from the vicarage training she had to study philosophy, political economic theory, and psychology at University College London. She was one of the earliest women students there. During her school years, she was known to be a fearless mountaineer. She would do alpine trekking with no one but her Swiss guides along with her. She also walked alone at a time where women kind of just didn't do that. And she was um, said to be able to meet most people at tennis and billiards. It's kind of cool, huh? So you start to get a picture, right? Brilliant, a little bit iconoclastic. She was also interested in women's issues from the very beginning. She um, worked towards women's rights in a variety of organizations and especially was focused on the plight of the poor women, working women, working mothers. It was a long-time interest, um, one that spanned most of her life. At University College London, she went on to get an MA and a Doctor of Literature. And um, during her education, primarily in Sanskrit studies and Indian studies, she also became one of the founding members of the Pali Text Society in 1881, which is responsible for publishing the vast majority of the Pali texts that we have available to us, at least initially. 
in English. Also during that time, not coincidentally, she met a professor at University College London, Thomas W. Rhys-Davids. And um, her colleague, Ivy Horner, says that Thomas, in fact, was the one who lured her to Buddhism. She'd already been exposed a little bit, but he was the one who lured her to study it by the bait of its women poets and its psychology needing investigation. Her first, um, the first half of her career kind of starts here then. And her first paper was entitled Women Leaders of the Buddhist Reformation. She and her colleague and friend Mabel Bode both had that paper presented at the, I'm going to read this, Ninth International Congress of Orientalists. And they were the first two so-called lady scholars to ever have work presented there. In two years later, Thomas and Caroline married. And um, according again to Mabel Bode, she began to study Pali at that time. She already had mastered Sanskrit. Um, But it was at the request of her husband that she began to study it. They had three kids, and what was thought to be a happy marriage by their friends organized around fidelity to an idea as two scholars. And that fidelity of an idea was to Gautama Buddha as a man, a very rational, intellectual approach to Buddhism. In her early career, she also taught at Victoria University, Manchester. And the um, chairman there referred to her as being an ornament of the school. She drew scholars and mentees from all around the world. And her work and her teaching inspired some of the next generation of scholars at that time, including F.L. Woodward and Ananda Kumar Swami. In this period between 1899 and 1917, Caroline co-translated many books that you've heard of. The Anguttara Nikaya, the Diga Nikaya, the Samyutta Nikaya, and the Terigata, the verses of the women elders. She also, in her spare time, managed to translate five out of seven books of the Abhidhamma Pitaka. The Abhidhamma, for those who might not be aware of it, is extraordinarily detailed methodology that um, kind of studies the matrices of the subtlest parts of the workings of the human mind from a Buddhist perspective. It is dry, highly detailed, and considered by some to be some quite difficult reading. She did so in this um, an interesting way that I want to talk about. So she was already interested in psychology and ethics. And um, her first translation, the Dhamma Sanghani, the first book of the Abhidhamma, she entitled A Buddhist Manual of Psychological Ethics. And that was the first time I was able to encounter in my research that anyone had linked psychology, Buddhism, and ethics in the English language as a title of anything, other than her the year before in an article prior to the book's release. This framing of Buddhism was then picked up on again, you can see, by titles by Paul Carew, who was a 
popular author and poet in America, about 1906, who began to publish titles with similar language. She also wrote a book in 1914 entitled Buddhist Psychology, which was cited by a number of psychological journals of the day, and in fact, it's still published and available on Amazon.com's digital shelves next to more contemporary classics of Buddhist psychology. But her approach to the Abhidhamma was not just Western revisionism. She was very committed to accuracy and detail and understanding, and for that purpose, frequently consulted with one of the fathers of modern Buddhism in Burma, Lady Sayada. In fact, they talked so often about some of the naughty problems in the Abhidhamma that he referred to her as his London Davy. Yeah. Um, it wasn't just Lady Sayadaw she talked to at that time, though. There was a growing interest in the rational, philosophical, and psychological aspects of Buddhism in Burma at that time, too. A concern that Buddhism and practice might die out under colonialism. So others, Buddhists and monastics, were also gaining education, and one of them was Shui San Ong, a student of Lady Sayadaw's, a serious Buddhist practitioner and an Oxford-educated scholar, Burmese man. And they collaborated on at least two projects, possibly more. One of them was the Abhidhamma Sangatha, which is a commentary on the Abhidhamma, And it is translated in English as Compendium of Philosophy by the two co-translators. And that book was published around 1910, and I find it to be an interesting book, not just because of the entitling of it, but the entire process. She received a um, group of translations from Ong, retranslated the entire thing, sent both sets back to him to collate, and then um, edited the results. And they debated back and forth. They disagreed on a number of things in these translations. And the reason for that was that Ong was a practicing Buddhist, a devotee, and a serious student of Lady Sayadaw's. And Caroline was a Western-educated, philosophically-oriented, highly rational philologist, textual analyst, She laments in her introduction, and she published an introduction by her and by him in this book, giving him sole credit for translating. She says, Westerners would not understand Buddhism until internalizing the perspective of those nourished on its living and growing tradition of culture. She also attributed this difficulty to the fact that she and other scholars approached the subject wearing spectacles of our own Greek tradition. A perspective, she added, that is predicated on permanence and identity rather than change and transmitted force. In the same introduction, which she published as an act of scholarly transparency, hoping that this would help Western and Asian scholars work hand-in-hand in a respectful way, She also talked of intentionally framing this work as a a philosophical work, incorporating logical arguments 
to engage the skeptical and scientific reader, one of whom is better worth holding than a hundred over-credulous temperaments. Smart lady. A few years later, and um, several Abhidhamma translations later, it's 1917. And in late October of that year, the Rice David's family experienced a tragedy. They lost one of their three children, their only son, in World War I. She was grief-stricken, and she turned to something that many Britons at that time were turning to, spiritualism, which was a movement that was sweeping across Europe and especially across England at the time. Her first spiritualist meeting I discovered in her diaries this summer was June 16, 1918. And I'm being precise about that date because it's also the earliest possible marking point for the dividing of her career. In that same diary, she writes of having come into contact through channeling and automatic writing with her dead son later that same year. She became quite a dedicated spiritualist. This is 26 years in to being focused on early Buddhism. A few years later, a second tragedy struck with the death of her older husband, Thomas, in 1922. And at that point, Caroline took on the presidency of the Polytech Society. During that time, she also mentored I.B. Horner and groomed her to take her place as president. And I.B. Horner writes that it was around 1922 that Caroline's search for original Buddhism began, a search that was going to preoccupy her for the next 20 years of her career, the rest of her life. My take on this is that she begins to try to integrate her spiritualist beliefs, her new beliefs, with her older dedication to early Buddhism. And she began to pioneer a kind of groundbreaking textual analysis that looked at stratifying different parts of the Pali Canon over time. The idea being that there might be older teachings kind of hidden underneath the more recent ones. And this is an idea that remains to this day in scholarship, but she approached it, unfortunately perhaps, through this filter, through this lens of her very strong beliefs in spiritualism and afterlife. So her techniques were groundbreaking and her hypotheses were extremely controversial, to say the least. She began to publicly advocate her hypotheses in 1927 and became convinced that the Buddha's oral teachings had been fundamentally reshaped. And her sense of what she was going to do was bridge the gap between the earliest oral teachings and the earliest writings available at that time. She was vilified by some of the monastics and scholars she had worked with for her views. And she knew it. She was well aware she wasn't liked. Yet she decided still it was more important to champion, in her mind, a vision of human beings being able to will a becoming of their own growth over multiple lifetimes. 
she wrote popular, or books aimed at a popular audience, at least 15 of them in this period of her life. She also wrote many articles and incorporated some of her theories into the introductory material of the Polytech Society publications themselves. This penchant for unusual theories and introductions meant that her introductions were later removed after her death um, upon subsequent publications of the Polytech Society books. They didn't exactly jibe with the dominant interpretation of early Buddhism of the day or even of early Buddhism now. Um, Unfortunately, her name also dropped away from a number of the texts that she translated over time. And many of her theories were later discredited by other scholars. So the second half of her career is much more controversial than the first. At the time of her death in 1942, she had edited and translated, edited or translated more than 20 books of the Polycanon. She had authored another 19 books aimed at the popular audience, and her articles were featured in or included in every single Eastern philosophy journal of the time. Her work was quite widespread. I'm going to read just a couple of quotes here in closing from her obituary. William Steed, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Someone correct me if I'm not. Thank you. Writes, it is not too much to say that the ideas of the educated layman about Pali Buddhism today are those first put forth by Mrs. Rees-Davids and that her own translations are worthy of being classed among the gems of English poetical literature. Her controversial ideas have proved and will continue to prove an invaluable stimulus for later research. In other words, her methods were groundbreaking, her ideas quite controversial. I.B. Horner writes in another obituary, she was a pioneer in these unusual ideas and in her way of tracing them. Her realization of early Buddhism's insistence on willing and making to become an urgent striving forward necessitated a complete reinterpretation of early Buddhist teachings. Her wish to find, or shall we say perhaps even create, a world religion responsive to the needs of her time resulted in ideas that fell intelligibly together into a coherent whole, profound, wise, and instinct with spiritual value. She applied these conclusions to the problems of the day, including shell-shocked, World War II, torn Britain. Horner closes, she herself was of great charm, of rare distinction of mind, and of ready willingness to help fellow seekers. She was one who lived with spirit and conscience as a lamp. So to recap, the first 26 years of Caroline Augusta Foley Rise David's life, she was a dedicated, detailed, accurate scholar, translator. 
she linked Buddhism to both psychology and ethics. She was one of the people popularizing a rational interpretation of it at that time. And she linked it not only in um, people's minds, but her translations and reframing shifted where Buddhist texts were placed in the Dewey Decimal System from esoterica to philosophy to psychology. In the last 20 years of her life, she was an iconoclast and a radical reinventor. Perhaps you could consider her a proto-New Age spiritual writer. Unfortunately, this was at times at cost to the detail accuracy of scholarship. So, because she is divided, her career is divided into two parts, I've left some information on the literature table about this. Her early career and her late career kind of side by side, if you want to compare for yourself. But um, I'm curious, what do you make of how she blended or contrasted scholarship and belief? What do you make of the life of this person? Thank you. Thank you, Don. That was fascinating. Um, maybe I just didn't hear, but did did she actually practice? Oh, did she practice during the first twenty six years? Did she sit? She, as far as I can tell, and my research is as of yet definitely not complete on her. But it appears that she tried meditation once. <laughs> <laughs> but really, this was not uncommon during uh-huh. that time. Yeah. That. Um, she and the other scholars in the Polytech Society were oriented more towards the philosophical and psychological right. aspects of it and um, uh-huh. didn't well, tend to practice. That's fascinating. I mean, I think then part of what I would make of her life is it sounds like when she experienced um, the chaos of her own grief and shock, that brought her out of a purely cognitive exploration into an experiential, and then she started to practice as a spiritualist. And I'm sorry for her that she didn't get a chance to experience the other centers of her self um, earlier, you know, with Buddhist practice. It is poignant, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Can you say, hi, John. Thank you. That was lovely. It is. Ice cream cone. Can you say any more about how she applied what she learned to um, issues of the time, such as shell shock? So um, she wrote a number of articles that were um, championing this vision that she had of what early Buddhism actually was. And she really framed it in terms of the transmigration of people willing a continual perfection or perfecting process of the human soul over multiple lifetimes and in multiple universes. So it was an early fusion of certain Buddhist ideas with ideas that are most definitely not congruent with early Buddhism, but owe themselves more to other streams of thinking. 
Um, but if you read some of her writings, it's clear that she's trying to somehow fuse elements of Buddhism and Christianity and other threads for the purpose of reinvigorating and um, giving hope to a society that was going through a very difficult time. And this was based on her own sense, of course, too, of grief. That's my understanding. Liz, yes. Hi. Um, oh. I'm here. Hi. Right behind. And my voice is a little scratchy, so I hope you can hear. Um, did she actually travel from London into Burma um, and India at that time? Not to my knowledge. My, um, my understanding is that these, these were correspondences. In fact, I had a couple of letters of hers I was able to get a hold of between her and Lady Saido. And Ong, I believe, um, was in Burma most of the time, though they may well have met since he was Oxford educated. He was clearly in England some of the time as well. It's patching in and out. Thanks very much for that talk. Um, have you done side-by-side readings of her translations of some of the texts and, for example, Bhikkhu Bodhi's or contemporary translations? A little bit. And how different do you find them? Hers are written in a Victorian form of English, so they're quite different. Um, Bhikkhu Bodhi is a wonderful translator, and he is able to bring in um, a kind of simplicity in his translations that renders them quite accessible. I haven't done a ton of reading, but one I have read side-by-side is the Vidala Sutta. And um, it's early translating, right? So it's, it's got a slightly different spin, but a remarkable amount of it is, is, seems to be pretty dead on. Thank you. How can somebody who's not practicing Buddhism translate the concepts of Buddhism accurately? Um, I find that quite difficult to grasp, uh, that she's coming from philosophy and coming from um, the uh, um, culture that she's coming from and she's not practicing. That's why I, I can understand why she and the Burmese people were having difficulty coming to agreement. Yes. Um, that, they, that someone who's practicing would have a conflict with how she's translating. Um, that one is practicing and the other isn't. Is that your understanding? So I hear two questions there, mm-hmm. and I just want to repeat them back and make sure I understand the mm-hmm. gist of what you're saying. The first is, um, how can someone who's not practicing translate with accuracy? Right. Yeah. And the second is whether or not the um, differences of opinion primarily came from this difference in practice background versus philosophical background. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the first is, um, it's actually not so uncommon for um, people who are not practitioners to be translating Buddhist texts. Um, Specialists in languages like Sanskrit and ancient Chinese and Pali um, can be very devoted to accurate linguistic translation. That might be their practice instead of meditation for some of them. 
So um, there's certainly a different dimension that comes in, and I think I'd prefer to remain agnostic as to whether or not a person can accurately render without practice experience, because also a great number of the texts are not about meditation. Oh, I understand it's not about meditation. Um, But how can you accurately translate not-self if you're not familiar with going to that place, Uh, for example? So one of the conversations... No, it's a great question. One of the conversations that she and Lady Sayadaw had was precisely around anatta. Mm -hmm. And um, this idea of psychologizing without a, a thinker was something that she really um, was in dialogue with them about and mm-hmm. trying to understand. So um, perhaps one answer to your, to your question is having many detailed conversations with people who do have that understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, one of the main points where she diverged later in her career was precisely in this area, mm-hmm. right? which also shows the lack of internalized understanding of that. Mm-hmm. So the second question about um, the nature of the differences of opinion, I think she very openly stated that that came from her own cultural background and philosophical biases, and that she had one set of cultural assumptions, and Ong and Lady Sayadaw and the other Burmese scholars had another. And my understanding is, from the way that she published her introductions, she was trying very hard not to privilege either. She was trying to actually just show people... These are two, and they're not going to be the same because we're coming from different directions. If anything, I took what she said to be a statement of cultural humility, that we Westerners can't truly understand this until it's woven into our culture, for example, by having Sangha here um, in the same way that it is woven into Burma and Sri Lanka and other areas. Thank you. Thank you for your question. Thanks. Thank you, Don, for your wonderful talk. It was, it was really great. Um, we know that uh, T.W. Reese davids her husband, was quite influential and you know, the founder of the Polytech Society. I don't know if there's an answer to the question, but I find myself wondering, do you know how influential she was on him? Because he, of course, was influential, so maybe her sphere of influence was even greater than we were imagining. That is a great question. Um, I know that they did consider each other collaborators. That's, that's clear. And it's not entirely clear to me how much influence she had. Her diaries didn't start until her son died. So direct, my direct knowledge of their dialogue um, may be somewhat limited. Um, so I wish I knew the answer to that question. I am sure that they influenced each other. It's just a matter of how much and in which directions. I can say this much. When she switched to getting very involved with spiritualism, there's one note in her diary about him attending one meeting, and he left early. <laughs> so I don't think that that influenced his translation or approach to early Buddhism very much. Uh, Do you know whether Carolyn uh, was acquainted with Colonel Alcott? 
I actually don't know. I feel like I ran across some reference to that in my research, but I do not remember. Um, I do know that she was acquainted with Angarika Dhammapala. So there was at least some overlap. And um, to put it mildly, Dhammapala did not like her. Um, and that's in her later career, right? So he was, um, he was not happy with her. But um, I'm not clear on the dates involved, whether this was before or after Dhammapala kind of broke with Olcott and Blavatsky. So it would be fascinating to know, but I don't know. Um, I guess the the root of my question is um, uh, the impact of the uh, Western cultural filter on the um, uh, reform uh, trends of uh, Buddhism, particularly in Sri Lanka. And uh, uh, whether we whether we see uh, uh, Carolyn's imprint on on that uh, on that movement. So that's that's a great question, and I don't know details of an answer, but I can say this much: that in the early half of her career, when she was working on such dedicated, um, detailed scholarship of translation and editing, that. Um, the monastic sangha in Burma and Sri Lanka and elsewhere was reading her translations and that it had a big impact, her and her husband and the other members of the Polytech Society, not just in the West, but in modern Buddhism globally at that point, particularly early Buddhism. Um, it's really difficult. I'm focused on her because we're talking about these particular individuals today, but I want to emphasize that almost everything she did was a team effort which will become clear if you decide to look at the list of translations. The few things she did on her own were the Terigata, the Dhammapada, and some of the Jatakas. So the smaller things, the more poetic things she worked on on her own, but the rest of them, you really, it's better to look at it as a group effort to which she was integral. So thank you for your question. Thank you, Don. Um, so you said she was a suffragist. Yes, suffragette. I'm curious if that impacted her work or if she wrote about that. And I'm also curious. Um, someone called her an ornament, which might then be a good thing. But when I hear it, I'm like, she is not an ornament. <laughs> so, <laughs> wondering if um, if she wrote about sexism or if how it impacted her work just to be a woman. It's a great question. Um, Alice Colette has a good article that addresses some of this, as well as Jonathan Walters. Um, they both write about it from the feminist perspective, or femi- different feminist perspectives, I should say. Um, I haven't read enough of her primary work to be able to answer your question comprehensively, but I can say that her choice of early articles, for example, Women Leaders of the Buddhist Reformation, says something pretty clearly there. Mm -hmm. And she and her colleague Mabel Bode both focused on women in Buddhism in their early careers. And she um, seemed to return to that focus in her late career as well, which I'm gleaning from comments made by I.B. Horner. Um, As to how much it influenced her You'll see that, for example, in the Vedala Sutta, the very fact that she chose to publish that sutta individually, that is a sutta about the nandamadina, 
So it definitely influenced her choice of material. Mm-hmm. And um, she seemed to have an active interest in, in uncovering the voices of women. Um, that said, she also exhibited tremendous fidelity to what was actually in the texts mm-hmm. at that time. So um, as you'll hear more about the challenges and opportunities of that later today, I imagine. We have about five more minutes. Any other questions? Um, Was she, uh, so she did the Abhidhamma and uh, Buddhism and psychology. Was she um, aware or working in any comparative way with psychology that was occurring at the same time like Freud and Jung that was going on at the time? She was certainly aware of it. Her Mm -hmm. undergraduate degree was partially in psychology. Uh And um, her work was published in psychological journals Mm. or referenced in psychological journals. Um, I am unaware of her doing any detailed comparisons, though you'll see occasionally a sentence or two that kind of hints at the comparisons, much in the same way that a contemporary author now would touch into popular trends of the time now. Mm-hmm. But she didn't do any particular comparisons at the time. She may have done that in the book Buddhist Psychology, but I haven't read the book, oh, so okay. I can't tell you. Thanks. You can check it out on Amazon if you want to find out. Okay, great, thanks. Thank you. Hi, thanks for your nice talk. Um, so you mentioned that you have um, three letters by her. And, and are all the correspondence letters and the, all the materials um, <coughs> written by her and kept, um, uh, kept or where are they kept? So um, Olive Schreiner, I believe it is, um, online, is where I believe I got the two between her and Lady Saido. And then the diaries are held um, in the Senate House Libraries in London. So I happened to be in England for something else this summer, and I spent a very happy day digging through diaries um, and um, taking pictures there. So those are the two main primary sources I'm aware of. There may be others that um, Grace has run across that I haven't, um, but those are the ones I found. Oh, first, I'd just like to thank you very much for this really interesting lecture. Uh, It's revealed a lot that I didn't know before, and uh, that's very helpful. Uh, I'm feeling uncomfortable with the characterization uh, of her as not a practitioner. And I was asking myself where that feeling of discomfort was coming from, and I think it comes from my early... Uh, the early years of monastic life training where we had so much emphasis on uh, sila, samadhi, and panya as being trainings and practices. And so uh, I'm not sure, even if she wasn't formally training in samadhi practices, that it means, uh, if, if that were so, that it means she's not a practitioner. Because I just think about this early training and there's so much emphasis on received Dhamma. Mm -hmm. 
as being an enormous part of our practice and training. And I'm equating practice and training here or strongly relating them. And so receive Dhamma in terms of listening to Dhamma lectures, uh, receiving oral teachings from teachers, and studying the texts themselves, even word by word, going down, drilling down into the meaning, uh, together with my fellow trainees, and um, then also with, with the teachers themselves. And it sounds to me like she was very much involved in this. It sounds like she was an ethicist. Maybe that's the wrong word, I'm not sure. Um, and that she spent a lot of time in contemplation of the Dhamma that she was working with. And I just want to recognize those things as being an enormous part for us if we were to divide, to divide Sila, Samadhi, and Panya into like thirds, then we would say if she's working strongly with Sila and Panya only, if that were so, then maybe two-thirds of the training or two-thirds of the practice. And then it seems like it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be right to, to characterize her then as, as not, not a person who is experiencing the work uh, of, this, of this path or going through it herself in her work, that it's like purely abstract, not affecting her life in any way, or uh, that she had no care about it, or this kind of thing. So I, I just wanted to mention that because I'm not, I just want to raise the question if it's fair to characterize her as not, not a practitioner, or to see her as um, working with the teachings in a completely abstract or disassociated way. Thank you very much, Aya. Um, I think those are wonderful points, and um, having dipped my toe into scholarship myself, I can say it certainly is a practice um, in the Dhamma. I think I'd prefer to just let your comments stand. I think you said a beautiful piece about it, and um, there are different approaches to practice in different cultures and in different times, and um, detailed study of the Dharma is certainly a big one, and does all of you are well aware, detailed application and following ethics is also a really big one. So thank you for that. Don, thank you so much. Thank you, Susan. Appreciate it. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.